Praise the Lord. He is worthy to be praised. He is a faithful God. And He is worthy to be trusted even when it looks like your life around you is falling apart. Uh, you see, uh, he, he is in control. He's seated on the throne and He will pull you through by His great sovereign grace. And that excites my soul. Amen. Well, um, my daughter got all the tune-carrying vocal abilities. I can't sing, so I won't try. Um, if you've got your copy of the Word of God, if you would take it and open it to John's Gospel, John chapter number 8, John chapter 8, and I want us to read together verses 1 through 11, and I'm going to ask you if you would like to, to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm actually going to read from the 53rd verse of the 7th chapter, uh, starting there. The text says, And they went each one to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, "Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her." And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Wow, you may be seated. That is a powerful picture of the gospel at work. Oh my, the amazing grace that saturates that text. Now, that text that we read, it, it's a text that, it's an attacked text and it's an abused text. Um, on one end, it's attacked because, especially by liberal scholars, because if you will note in some of your translations, it makes you aware of the fact that in the earliest manuscripts, the earliest Cohen Greek manuscripts, that this particular pericope or section, slice of Scripture, doesn't, it's not there. It appears later on in other just as weighty Greek manuscripts. But So they would argue, some would argue that mm, it doesn't belong in the Scripture. But I would not argue such a stupid point. 
You see, God is sovereign and God is on his throne and God ensured that this passage was in the manuscripts that we have long before the New Testament was ever canonized and ever put together. So this passage is very relevant, it's very valid, and it contains here gospel truth that is hope for sinners like you and sinners like me. Now, this is an abused text. There are those that will come to it and they will, especially in our postmodern culture, will come and try to use this as a a banner for uh, unfounded tolerance, anything goes kind of thing, you know, to say that, well, brother, you can't really address sin or anything like that in anyone else's life because Jesus said, you know, he that's without sin, let him cast the first stone because, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it, reality is, and, it, it, and it's right, we are all, we all have sin. We all deal with sin. We all, we're all sinners. But that is not what Jesus is saying when he says that. You've got to understand it in its context. And then there are those that will come along and they'll say, well, see, Jesus didn't condemn this woman, this sinful woman. So Jesus doesn't condemn sin at all anymore. And so there are all kinds of things that are going on in this text that Jesus is dealing with. But that is not what Jesus is saying. So what I want to do this morning is I want to just walk through this text and I want us to make some observations about what is going on here. There are three observations that I would like to make to you this morning. And the first one is this, and I just want to walk through the text. The first one is this. We see in verses 1 through 6, we see the religious attack. We see the religious attack. Now let me just step back a minute and talk about religion for just a moment. Because we get some people, especially in the deep south, because we got a lot of religion down here and not a whole lot of true Christianity sometimes. But, but religion is different from a real relationship with God. Okay? Religion hates God. Right? I would remind you there is a difference between religion, religious people, and real Christianity. Religion is man-made. Religion is man's attempts to try and reach God and, and explain God. And in so doing, religion never reaches God at all. And it actually recreates a God with a little g in its own convenient image. Religion is everywhere. It's everywhere you find true Christians gathered to worship the true and living God. True Christianity is about God revealing Himself in Christ, through Christ alone, inviting sinners who could never make their lives right to come to Him in a new covenant relationship. Now, when we look at John chapter 8... We see right here the way of religion at work. You see it all through the pages of the New Testament at times. But here in John 8, we have a prime example of this. In these first six verses of John 8, we find some very, very, very religious men on the attack. We see the scribes and the Pharisees 
I mean, the audacity of these guys. They are trying to trap Jesus. Trap Jesus. They're trying to, to, to cause Jesus to stumble up. We're, we're, they, I, I would remind you of the religiosity of these men that we have right here. They, these are guys, listen, they regularly attended worship. They regularly practiced spiritual disciplines. They prayed. They fasted. They studied and memorized the scriptures. But they were just religious. They had no love for God. They had no love for Christ, obviously. They had no love there. And so they had no saving relationship with him. These guys and religious people are always like this. They're mean and they're legalistic. And all they were doing was trying to trap the world's Savior, Jesus Christ. These religious men were students of the Scriptures. Yet the Scriptures they studied, they couldn't rightly comprehend because they did not have the Spirit of God. They knew the letter of the law, but they didn't know the spirit of the law. For had they known the spirit of the law, they would have been calling this sinful woman to repentance and faith. They certainly would not have been exploiting her sin to try and trip up the Savior and accomplish their own agenda. But that's what they were doing. Jesus talks about religious people like this in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23 when he said this. Remember in chapter 23 of Matthew, he gave these warnings, these woes to those religious people. And he said this, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And these people were like that. They were missing the whole point of the law of God. And the religious mindset of these religious men. They twisted. They were twisted and they twist the scriptures These men were twisted the sacred text in hoping to trap Jesus. They wanted to be able to say, Jesus, you're a blasphemer. Jesus, you don't honor God's law. Jesus, you're just a devil. That's what they were wanting to do. Though they themselves later on in chapter 8, Jesus gets quite frank with them because after he talks about that mighty spiritual liberation that he brings that we looked at back on July 4th, he just tells them plain out, guys, you're of your father, the devil. And the devil is the father of every religious person on this planet. And the more religious you are, the more, the closer you are to your daddy, the devil. Because there's a difference between religion and relationship. There's a, listen, you can be a mean, dead snake and never have love for Christ in your heart. It comes out all the time. There's a difference. There's a difference. Well, if you'll recall, Jesus had rocked their religious world with the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, there we have these guys, Pharisees and scribes, and they thought they were 
experts in the law. And God said through Christ, Jesus would say things like, now you have heard it said. And then he would say the law, but then he would give the interpretation of the law. You remember those statements? Jesus made several of them in Matthew chapter 6. And every time he would say, you heard it said, it makes me think you heard it said what those Pharisees said, but let me tell you what the law really means. And that really messed them up because they thought Jesus was coming to abolish the law, but Jesus made it clear. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And oh, he did. Through his obedience to it, And he fulfilled the demand of the law in his sacrifice on Calvary. Something that we could never do at all. Their fears of him abolishing the law were unfounded. And with this poor woman caught in sin, they thought they had found an opportunity to find Jesus guilty of not honoring the law of God. But though it looks like it does, religion doesn't. Religion never wins. Okay? It never wins. You see, they made fools out of themselves because in their blindness, spiritual blindness, they didn't realize standing before them was the author of that law in human flesh. The very lawgiver himself. I mean, can you imagine... The th- of trying to trip up the author of the sacred text. It's ludicrous. But the religious mind is blind. It's carnal. It cannot comprehend or understand the things of God or of His Spirit. So Jesus, they came to. Jesus, author of the law. Jesus, they threw the law. In his face, his own law, in verses 4 and 5, they said, Jesus, this woman, you see this woman? I can hear the religious finger pointing going on. This woman over here, you see her? She was caught in sin. She was caught in it. The law of Moses says women such as her should be put to death. Mm. Well, Jesus doesn't flinch. Because Jesus, the author of the law, knew what Deuteronomy 22.22 said. And already in their little scheme to upset Jesus, they're misquoting the law. Yes, the penalty for such sin was death under the old covenant. But the law did not just simply say put this woman to death. It said put to death the man too. It takes two to tango. Well, Jesus doesn't flinch. Notice, and here's my second observation. The response of Jesus. Jesus does something unusual. Jesus does something uncanny. Jesus does something unprecedented. Jesus does something undeniably profound. 
Jesus stoops to the ground and he begins to write. He just begins to write with his finger in the ground. Surrounded by the religious accusers of this sinful woman, he stands up and he makes that famous statement. He that is without sin. You pick up the first stone. And cast it. Boy, that's powerful. What he just did. There wasn't a man standing. That could pick up that rock. Or that stone. You see. We can speculate. Until the cows come home. About what Jesus was writing on the ground. The text doesn't say what he was writing. We can speculate, I suppose. In my observation, knowing what the law really said in Deuteronomy 22.22, and wondering where the man was that help this woman accomplish her sin, I really believe that Jesus perhaps, perhaps, this is not biblical theology, this is scatology, perhaps he was writing the names of those scribes and those Pharisees that had been with this very woman. For how else perhaps did they catch her in the very act? I don't know. But it could have been that that's what they did. Because you see, Jesus would have known who in that crowd was guilty? Go back to John 2. It says Jesus knows all men. He knows their heart. There were those there that wanted to, it said, it says in that text, many believed in him because of the signs and wonders that he was doing, but Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew all men. That's what the text says. Jesus knew those devils that were surrounded, exploiting this woman this this woman that is is beat up and bruised by her own sin who is hurting who is wounded religion doesn't acknowledge the wound religion doesn't acknowledge the pain religion only wants to pound and hate and hurt and beat and destroy like their father the devil who roams about like a Roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It was quite the scene. However, I'm going to try not to jump, okay? Y'all going to have to get me a chain to hold me down, all right? Lord have mercy. If y'all knew me back in the days when I used to walk all over the place, I'd been out the back door and in the in uh, the foyer, still coming out here preaching, and people used to get uncomfortable because I was coming up behind them. They didn't know what I was doing. I guess I've become more Baptistic. All right, now listen to me. This whole incident is a beautiful picture 
of the providence and sovereignty of God. (laughs) These religious men intended this woman die in hopes that Jesus could be trapped. They were endangering this woman's life. They didn't know what was going to happen. They just wanted to trap Jesus as a law abolisher. But I want you to know that even though this woman had been caught and even though this woman was full of shame and even though this woman was full of pain and even though this woman had been exposed, that her being caught even by these religious devils was in God's plan because God uses the devil sometimes to accomplish His purpose and God was bigger than their religious plan was orchestrating this woman's great salvation for her eternal good and Christ's eternal glory. The whole time the Holy Spirit was drawing her to face her sin and her shame and to be saved from that shame and that sin all along. For Jesus did not come into the world John 3 and verse 17 to condemn the world but to save the world. This here, Jesus was bringing everlasting life to her soul. It was the religion. We talk about now Jesus condemns, but it was the religious people, the self-inflated, self-exalting, self-righteous Pharisee type that he came to condemn. Because in John chapter 3, we also read that they stood condemned already. Now, Verses 10 and 11. Third observation. We see the redemption of this sinful woman. Jesus looks at her. And Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She must have had her eyes closed. She must have been just waiting, just waiting for the impact of those rocks to hit her scalp. And I imagine she opened her eyes, probably stained with tears, to see none of those religious devils. They got out of there. Older ones first to the younger. I guess the older ones were a little wiser. Wow. She says, Lord, there's no one there. You see, what looked like the day of her death, the day that she would reap sin's penalty, became the day of her experiencing regeneration, new life, everlasting life. This day, Jesus made her free indeed. I do not, says Jesus, condemn you. In the twinkling of an eye, without walking down an aisle, without praying some prayer that somebody led her in, She must have been miraculously born again because, because the only one who can say, I am not forgiven, is not condemned, is the one who has believed. 
The only one who can say they're not condemned is the one who is in Christ. For Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1, For therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit and life has set them free from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. That's good news. Now, the question arises, did Jesus ignore the law? I mean, you can't get past the fact that the law says the penalty under the old covenant was death. I mean, technically, that woman could, should have been stoned and whoever the male was. But they weren't. What in the world? Why is this? Well, there is only one, first of all, who could have cast a stone that day. It's the one who they were trying to trap. It's Jesus. Jesus could have done that. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was holy. Jesus didn't sin. Jesus never sinned. He's perfect. He's not like us. But you see, Jesus was stoned figuratively for her. For you see, this woman, it becomes apparent, had to be one of whom Jesus bled and died and atoned for her sin. For a sin's death penalty was met in Christ and in Christ alone at Calvary's cross. He satisfied the death penalty. Thus we have a woman here who was caught in her sin just like some of you have been caught in your sin. We have a woman here who was condemned rightly by the law, but we have a woman here who had to call on the name of the Lord from the depth of her heart because she was cleared and cleaned and made just as if she had never, ever, 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 ever in all of her existence sinned. Holy, righteous by the blood of the Lamb. Oh my goodness, that's good. That's gospel. That's the good news. That's what the church should be rejoicing over. We should never get over it. We deserve death. We deserve hell. But Christ Jesus obeyed the law perfectly and went to Calvary's cross and bore the penalty and the wrath that we deserve. And we who turn to Him and trust Him, His perfect righteousness and obedience, He gives to us. We are righteous as He is righteous, but it's an alien righteousness because it's not our own. It's outside of ourselves. That's the gospel. Religion won't tell you that. Religion makes you work for it in some way. Always. Wow. I'll simmer down now. Wow. That's good news. To give you a Greek word that I just like to say, that's euangelion. What is that? That means gospel, good news. That's the word translated. I just like the way that rolls off the tongue.
You say, well, I don't agree with your Greek pronunciation. It's a dead language. Koine, not Greek, but Koine. All right. Now, perhaps you're here this morning, or perhaps someone later on is listening by podcast, and you feel the weight of sin's condemnation pressing upon you. If that describes you, and you simultaneously feel your helplessness. I can't do anything about it. I can't do anything about it. I can't do anything about it. You feel that helplessness. That helplessness to earn God's favor and earn God's forgiveness. My pastoral plea with you is simply this. Turn to Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord. The text says in John 6 that He will not turn you away. Wow. Wow. This is God's Word. I'm going to ask every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. And I'm going to ask Angie if she would to come.